In 2007, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of one of the largest Protestant seminaries in the world, wrote, quote, Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within them. In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own. This is the truth that Protestants have been heralding since the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. And it is, in fact, the very truth which the scriptures herald themselves. When Martin Luther began to proclaim that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone in the 16th century, he was not proclaiming some new doctrine. He was merely proclaiming the doctrine that is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In fact, that text played a pivotal role in Luther's own life. While he was working on a preface to his works in Latin, some 25 years or so after he had taught on the text, he wrote the following about his experience engaging with the text that we're going to be reading and thinking about this morning. This is what he wrote about engaging with Romans 1, 16 and 17. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Tuesday of this week marks the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous and in some circles infamous actions of nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. In Luther's, Luther's actions, they set off a chain of events which eventually led to the Protestant Reformation, which recovered the authority of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we do not wish to study Luther, but we do wish to revel in the truth that he rightly saw in God's word, that the gospel is the power of salvation, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I do not think it is an overstatement to suggest that rightly understanding and warmly embracing with faith the truth of this text would make the difference between heaven and hell. May God be gracious to us as we seek to study his word 
and understand it. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find uh, the passage beginning, I believe, on page 939. 939. If I had to summarize what I thought Paul was chiefly concerned about in his letter to the Romans, I'd say that Paul is chiefly concerned about the gospel. But is that what Paul is concerned about in the immediate context of Romans 1, 16 and 17? Well, in the first 15 verses of this letter, Paul has shared with the Romans his call to be an apostle and how his call is closely linked to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See that in verse 1. He has addressed his letter to all of the believers in Rome, that is, those who have received the gospel, and he has greeted them with grace and peace, the blessings of the gospel, verse 7. Paul has also given thanks to God for his brothers and sisters in Christ who were in Rome, and he expressed his desire to come and to minister the gospel among them. That's verses 8 to 15. Read Romans 1.15 there with me. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's important for us to see Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel in Romans 1.15 because in verses 16 and 17, Paul enumerates the reasons that he is so eager to preach the gospel. First, Paul is eager to preach the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And secondly... Paul is eager to preach the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let me read these two verses for us now. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to step through these verses kind of piece by piece, but I trust you see the headlines clearly. Though Paul offers two reasons for why he is eager to preach the gospel and not ashamed of the gospel, we're going to study these verses under three headings. Look at Paul, we're going to look at Paul's two points, and then we're going to kind of reflect on them. We're going to self-reflect on what Paul has said. So if you're taking notes this morning, here, here are the three points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Two points, really, and a question. First, the gospel is the power of God. It's going to be point one. Point two, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And then we'll ask, are we eager or are we ashamed? Let's begin by looking at our first point, at Paul's assertion that the gospel is the power of God. And as we do, let me just read verse 16 again. The gospel is the power of God. Verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If there is one thing that the scriptures make clear from the very beginning, it is that God is powerful. He is so powerful, in fact, that by the mere word of his mouth, he creates everything from nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Simply by speaking, the universe springs into existence. But Paul here is not speaking about God's kind of general power displayed in creation. He's speaking more precisely. 
He's speaking particularly about God's power to save, displayed and mediated in and through the gospel. If we were to think about how God powerfully uses the gospel, then we need to think about what exactly the gospel is. The gospel is quite simply the good news about Jesus. It is a message of good news in a world filled with so much bad news. In in one of his other letters, the Apostle Paul summarized the good news of the gospel this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation is the message about Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the message. This is the good news that we're going to continue to unpack this morning. And how could this message about Jesus be so powerful? Well, look over at the very beginning of this letter in Romans 1. Read verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in reading this, it should really come as no surprise to us that the gospel is powerful because the person who is at the very center of it has been declared to be the Son of God in power by His death and resurrection from the dead. The gospel is God's most powerful message about the most powerful person the world has ever seen. But God's power is never used arbitrarily. When God exercises his power, he always has a goal, and he always accomplishes that goal. What does God use his powerful gospel for? Well, we see here in the text, don't we? He uses it for salvation. Salvation in the scriptures usually carries with it kind of negative connotations. In other words, salvation comes in the context of danger. A rescue is required. A deliverance is desired. Perhaps the clearest Old Testament example of God's salvation and deliverance is found in the Exodus. God, God's people, as you may recall, were enslaved in Egypt and God powerfully poured out ten plagues upon the people of Egypt. Pharaoh was finally compelled to recognize God's overwhelming power and he let God's people go. But that wasn't the end of God's display of power and deliverance of his people for on their way out of Egypt, God pushed back the waters of the Red Sea. And he allowed his people to cross on dry land. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 77, verses 14 and 15, speaks of God's powerful deliverance of his people. The psalmist writes, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might, your power among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. 
all throughout the scriptures. God has powerfully saved his people from enemies and danger. But all of those Old Testament acts of salvation and deliverance were but types and shadows of the true and final reality that was to come in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God powerfully saves his his people from the fiercest enemies of sin and death. And so in this message of Jesus Christ, we see the culmination of God's power to save sinners. He rescues his people from the most certain danger of hell. The saving, delivering power of the gospel is made known to, you see there, everyone who believes. In in John's gospel and in Paul's letters, um, his letter to the Romans, belief and faith, really they're they're basically interchangeable. So often today, people uh, will speak of faith as something that's kind of very amorphous. You can just kind of have faith, you know. Faith, Faith in what? Faith, you see actually has an object. That's how the Bible speaks about faith. We, we place our faith in someone. Faith, believing, is trusting in and depending upon Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the, he's the location of our faith, the, the person we place our faith in. Remember, this gospel message is about a person. It's about Jesus. We believe in Him. We believe that He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was raised from the grave for our justification in accordance with the Scriptures. So we trust in Jesus, and we depend upon Him. Jesus, He gladly receives the faith of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is why we as Christians are compelled to send people all over the world to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's saving power in the gospel is applied to all kinds of people as they believe in Him. And any kind of person, regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, age, or sex, may believe in Jesus. The gospel is for everyone who believes. And so after leveling the earth at the foot of the cross by saying that God's saving power promised in the gospel is available to all who believe, Paul then adds to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now many uh, have made understanding this phrase more complex than it actually is. Uh, First, it's important to remember that Paul has just stressed that everyone who is saved is saved in exactly the same way through faith in Jesus. Secondly, this phrase is not to be thought of as kind of a line that people get in. As though Jewish people are to come to the front of the line because... Uh, God loves them most. And then Greeks, which is really everyone else in the world, can get behind the Jewish persons who have decided to put their faith in Jesus. Now, we ought not think of this phrase in that way. We ought to think of this in connection, I think, with the the progress of the history of redemption. The, The Jewish people were the ones who first heard God's promises concerning the Messiah. We see that very clearly in the Old Testament. Not only that, but God promised the world, God promised that he would raise up his Messiah among the Jewish people. So in a very real way, God's saving power in Jesus Christ came to them first. In fact, John's gospel uh, opens noting that Jesus came to his own, but sadly that his own did not receive him. Not only that, the spread of the gospel begins in a largely Jewish territory and then moves out from there. The spirit Uh, is powerfully poured out in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and then God's saving power is expressed 
as more than 3,000 people come to believe the message about Jesus. Then the gospel kind of progresses out from Jerusalem to Judea and then to the ends of the earth. So while the message historically comes to uh, the Jews first, it's then spread to the Gentiles. It comes to, to everyone. And we should desire to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with all kinds of people. We should be indiscriminate in our proclamation of the gospel. We should desire to see people saved from every tongue and tribe and nation. What should we do if those who we're sharing the gospel with express faith in Jesus? What is our responsibility then? Well, our responsibility then is to encourage them to keep believing and to keep uh, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and to begin walking with them and helping them, helping them understand what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means we, we teach them about what it, what it means to, to truly turn away from sin and to live under Jesus' lordship. And in short, when people express faith in Jesus, we're to, to make them a disciple. And if, if they have truly given themselves to Christ, then we should encourage them to be baptized in obedience to Jesus and to join a local church. Those who believe the message about Jesus are powerfully saved by God because the message about Jesus is what God uses to powerfully save sinners. Well, having considered Paul's first assertion that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, let's turn now and consider the second reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God. Read Romans 1, 17 there. For in it, the righteousness, righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, uh, we not only find the second reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel, but we also find the very reason that the gospel is in fact the power of God unto salvation. Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and there are several ways that we can think about this phrase, the righteousness of God. Let me just name three. Uh, first, we could think about it as an attribute of God. Um, it's part of God's character to be righteous and to be just. This is revealed regularly through the scriptures. So in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, we're, we're told that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. God does what is righteous and just. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 6, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. In Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, we're told that God is a, a righteous judge. In John chapter 17, verse 25, when Jesus prays to the Father, he addresses him as the righteous Father. God, because he is righteous, cannot leave the guilty unpunished. Read that in Exodus 34, verse 7. So, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment due to our sins. This seems to be Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where we read, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show, listen to Paul, God's righteousness. In the punishment of his own dear son, God's righteousness was revealed, was made plain. There's another way, a second way we can think about this phrase, the righteousness of God. We can think it, about it as, as revealing the righteousness of God as being something that God does. 
Righteousness is something that God does. Not only is God frequently described as righteous in his person throughout the scriptures, but God is described as bringing his righteousness near. So in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, we read, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In the gospel, God's righteousness has drawn near in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has performed righteous deeds. Still, there's another way, a third way to think about the righteousness of God. We can also biblically think about the righteousness of God as being uh, revealed, uh, as something that God has applied. So something in regard to his character, something revealed, and then applied. Uh, this phrase, the righteousness of God, can also be properly translated the righteousness from God. So in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul admits that his own righteousness will not save him but that the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ will. God has applied his own righteousness to Paul's account as Paul has received the righteousness of Christ because he has placed his faith in the righteous one, in Jesus Christ. So you see, Jesus Christ's righteousness was imputed, credited, reckoned, or applied to Paul's account. John Stott explains this well. He writes, It is a righteous status which God requires if we are to ever stand before Him, which He achieves through the atoning sacrifice on the cross, which He reveals in the gospel, and which He freely bestows on all who trust in Jesus Christ. Did you, did you get that? A righteousness that God requires, that God achieves, that he reveals and that he bestows. This righteousness is all of God. So when we, we place our faith in Jesus, we receive all of his righteousness, just as he received all of our sin and all of the punishment due to it on the cross. This is called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us of God, as we confessed earlier in Article 5 of our church's statement of faith. What this means is that all of Jesus' righteous deeds were freely credited to our account. So earlier in the week, I was reading these verses with my kids and trying to explain the doctrine of imputation. So I say, so let's, let's say that I put $100 in Christopher's bank account. The eyebrows go, whoo! You know, uh, wow, I've suddenly got $100. That's something that I have credited to my son's account. That's what it means to have Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. That's something that God freely does of his own grace. So we need to understand that it's, it's not enough simply for Jesus to die for our sins. It is not enough for our debts to be cleared. We have to be made righteous in God's sight. We have to be made righteous through Jesus' righteous life. Because our lives are filled with unrighteousness. We need the righteousness of God. And the righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, who is at the very center of the gospel. This is the reason that all of Christ's earthly life and ministry is so important. You see, we needed his 30 plus years of life on this earth. To be our Savior, Jesus 
could not just have stepped down from heaven, shown up on earth to die, be raised, and ascend back to heaven. No, he had to live for us if he was going to die for us and be raised for us if he was going to rule over us. All of Jesus keeping the law, obeying God, and performing righteous deeds were necessary for our salvation. We need the whole of Jesus' obedience, his righteousness credited to our account. We need Jesus' righteousness to be saved. This is why uh, when the great theologian J. Gresham Machen was on his deathbed, uh, he sent uh, the following telegram to his friend, John Murray. He wrote, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. You see, in, in referring to the active obedience of Christ, Machen was referring to all of Christ's law-keeping and obedience to the Father. We know from Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to carry through to completion all that God required of His people. And so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed because we see that Jesus has been perfectly righteous for us and for our salvation. And herein lies the power of the gospel. That Jesus Christ's righteousness is revealed and reckoned, credited to our account. We can view the revealing of God's righteousness as the revealing of His character, His activity, or something that He applies to those who believe. And while all three perspectives on the righteousness of God are biblical, and I think even probably present, the emphasis of the text seems to be on that latter one, the righteousness of God applied to our account by faith. I think this is what Paul wants us to see most clearly, and I think it makes the most sense of what he says given the, the phrase that follows the righteousness of God. In the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as verse 17 says. What this indicates is how we come to possess the righteousness that God has revealed in the gospel. Paul is telling us that Christ's righteousness is credited to our account by faith from beginning to end. In other words, there is no other way to be counted as righteous. Paul is stressing the necessity of faith alone in Christ alone. Paul is saying that God applies the righteousness of Christ that he has revealed in the gospel as we place our faith in Jesus. A little later, citing Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Paul will say in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what does Scripture say? Abram believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham believed God's message, his word of promise, and it was counted, reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was not justified, counted as righteous in God's sight, because he was circumcised, or for anything that he did, he was justified and counted as righteous in God's sight because he believed God. This good news tells us how God makes us righteous in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. The righteousness of God is credited to our account and it's received by faith alone. Paul quotes scripture to stress that point. When you see that phrase, as it is written in the New Testament, 
You see that in verse 17 and other places in the New Testament. What the writers are doing, what Paul is doing here, he's returning to the Old Testament to show, to show us that what they've just said is consistent with the Bible's teaching, the Old Testament's teaching. Here Paul is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In its original context, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, uh, is part of the Lord's answer. So the Lord is answering back to Habakkuk. It's part of the Lord's answer to the prophet. So you see, in chapter 1, the prophet was lamenting that the Lord chose Babylon, a wicked nation, to punish the people of Israel. And the Lord responds to Habakkuk's complaint by telling him, among other things, that the righteous shall live by faith. So you see, the Lord was reminding Habakkuk that those who are truly righteous in God's sight, those who already have trusted in God, will continue to trust in God in the midst of trials of various kinds. And while a cursory reading of Habakkuk 2.4 might lead us to place an emphasis on living by faith in the midst of trials, what Paul's quotation of the text tells us is that the true people of God begin in faith and continue on in faith, whatever may come. Those who are made righteous by faith Continue to live righteously by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed to us in the gospel. It's credited to our account by faith. And having been made righteous in God's sight, we live out of that new identity in faith. Still, we ought not think that it is our faith that saves us. It is not our faith that saves us. Faith is merely the instrument that God uses to justify his people. Let me say that again. We ought not think that it is our faith that saves us. Faith is merely the instrument that God uses to justify his people. As A.W. Pink has so beautifully said, we are justified by faith. Not because of what faith is, but because of what it receives. See, faith receives the righteousness of Christ that has been revealed in the gospel. Faith says, Jesus lived, died, and rose again for me. Faith says, I have done nothing. Jesus has done it all. Faith says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We are saved, as someone said, I can't remember who it is now. We are saved not on the basis of the strength of our faith, but on the basis of the strength of our Savior. We're saved because of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I want to invite you to receive the righteousness of Jesus revealed in the gospel. Before Martin Luther really came to understand these verses, he tried to earn his salvation by performing his own works of righteousness. Friend, do you, do you realize that there is nothing you can do to save yourself? The scriptures tell us that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. I, I'm pretty confident that you can't outdo Martin Luther or the Apostle Paul for that matter. Both men were zealous in their pursuit of righteousness. Paul, I think, even more than Luther... But both, by God's grace, came to see the solution was not found within them, but outside of them, in Jesus Christ. 
Friend, just like Martin Luther, the Apostle Paul, and everyone here this morning, you have sinned and rebelled against God. We all have. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, We've all rebelled against the one who made us. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have decided that we will live our own way rather than God's way. Not only that, but because God is holy and just because He is righteous, He must punish our sin. We have sinned against the infinitely righteous God. And because of our sins, we all deserve to be punished for them for all eternity in hell. And the Bible reveals at least two things clearly. The Bible reveals that we are unrighteous. But the good news is the Bible also reveals to us that Jesus is perfectly righteous. Though Jesus was perfectly righteous, though he kept all of God's law and obeyed all of his commands, he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. Jesus died bearing, enduring the wrath of God for the sins of all of those who ever turned from their sins and put their faith in him. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he was the perfect, righteous sacrifice on our behalf. And now God and now Jesus calls all of us to believe that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. Friend, I want to urge you to turn away from your unrighteousness and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And if you want to know more about what that means, what it means to to place your faith in Jesus, to depend upon Him, that when you stand before God's throne, you'll simply say, I'm only welcome in your kingdom because of what Jesus has done. If you want to know more about that, that good news, this message that is God's power unto salvation for those who believe, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's No other uh, good news. There's nothing more important than thinking about this wonderful news revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Children, I want to say a word to, to you for a moment. Do you recognize that there is a difference between outward obedience and genuine faith? There's a difference between outward obedience and genuine faith. You are blessed to have been given parents who bring you to church. And, and I trust uh, talk about the gospel with you. Talk about the good news of Jesus with you. And I'm guessing that they probably institute rules at your house that encourage obedience to God. But even if you obey them perfectly, which, let's be honest, we can't. Uh, you'll soon see that you can't. Uh, your, your works are like filthy rags in God's sight. Your works, your obedience cannot save you. But Jesus can. So put your faith in Jesus alone. Ask your parents. Put them on the spot this afternoon or this evening. Ask them why why they put their hope in Jesus. Why he's their only hope. Ask them why they believe that Jesus is their only hope before the holy God. Paul, he is eager to preach the gospel He's eager to preach the gospel because, two things, it's the saving power of God in which the righteousness of God is revealed. But the question I now want us to kind of turn and ask ourselves, are we we with Paul? Are we ashamed to proclaim the name of Christ or are we eager? 
This is the third and final point that I want us to think briefly about this morning. Are we ashamed or eager? I want us to think through some application and and do some self-reflection. Notice there again in verse 15 that Paul mentions his, his eagerness to preach the gospel. And then there in verse 16, Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know about you, uh, but as I read these verses this week, I was um, struck by that word ashamed. Shame, I I think, has been used in uh, recent days as an instrument. I think shame has been used as an instrument to suppress a certain form of morality and a message. Uh, And I think shame has also been used as an instrument to coerce or to draw out a certain form of morality or message. In our day, the core locus of shame is generally found in the conscience of the surrounding community and culture. If your morality or your message is out of step with the prevailing morality or message of the surrounding community or culture, then you open yourself up to the prospect of being shamed in one way or another. This can happen rather personally, you know, perhaps in your office space, uh, in your neighborhood, in a PTA meeting. Uh, maybe your ideas and opinions are shot down and you are berated for such foolish thinking. Uh, and this, this can happen personally. It can also happen rather impersonally, can't it? Uh, through comments on your social media wall, uh, likes or lack of likes on Facebook, thumbs up or thumbs down on you know, YouTube, and so many other forms of shame that I'm blissfully ignorant about. Perhaps there are some things that we should be ashamed about. We should be ashamed of our sin. And that shame should send us, I think, to the Savior, to Jesus. There are some things, however, that we should not be ashamed about. Uh, Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, let's, let's reflect, reflect on our hearts and lives for a moment. Are we ashamed of the good news of Jesus? Are we ashamed of calling Jesus our Lord? In those spaces in our community and culture where perhaps that's not the prevailing consciousness, the opinion that is to be lauded. Think about Paul for a minute. I actually think what Paul is doing here is very real for him. I have no doubt that it would have been a real temptation for Paul to be ashamed of the gospel. Just just think of what he and early Christians went through to defend and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul himself was imprisoned. He was chased out of town, mocked, laughed at, and considered a fool for believing that Jesus got up from the dead. With such negative responses to the gospel, there's no doubt that Paul could have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. With such negative responses, Paul might have been tempted to close his mouth in public or only speak with those whom he already knew to be Christians. You know, Jesus mentioned the possibility of being ashamed of him. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, this is what Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. 
And I think Jesus and Paul mention these things because they're a real struggle for us. Jesus warned of this because it would be a real danger for his disciples. In, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 8, another one of Paul's letters, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of Jesus. Being ashamed of the gospel and of Jesus is not a hypothetical category. And it's my sense that we, if we're honest with ourselves, are a lot more susceptible to being ashamed of the gospel than we may first want to admit. How many times have we had the opportunity to speak of Jesus and we haven't because we're just kind of feeling a bit embarrassed? Embarrassed perhaps because we don't think that we're all that eloquent or embarrassed because of the actual message itself. The message of the gospel is foolishness to our world. And we can kind of understand that, right? I mean, we talk about how a man's death brings life. We sang that earlier. Uh, we, we talk about how a dead man is raised. That doesn't happen every day. We talk about how a dead man is raised. And then we say, and he comes to live inside us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can get why this message about Jesus might be foolishness to our world. But this foolish message is, Paul says, the power of of God for salvation so that no one can boast. The truth is we've probably failed to speak about Christ more times than we, we really care to remember. How many of your coworkers or neighbors, uh, classmates at school, how many of them know that you're a Christian? How many of your, your neighbors know which candidate you are supporting in an election cycle? How many of your friends on Facebook know which candidate you are not supporting? Do our neighbors know more about what we think of candidates and parties and policies than what we think about the person of Jesus Christ? Have we talked more about them or, or about Jesus? How do, we, how do we fight against being ashamed of the gospel? Part of it lies in remembering that of all the things that are really worth being ashamed of, that those were born by Jesus on the cross. All of our sins were credited to him. All of the things that are really worth being ashamed of are our sins. And the good news is that in Jesus Christ we have been saved. We won't have to bear the everlasting contempt of God. Because Jesus has borne it for us. What is momentary contempt and shame? When we live in the pleasure of God forevermore. Don't you think that it was important for those Christians to whom Paul was writing? That this was a message that they needed to hear? Remember, he, he's writing to the church in Rome. To the church located the place where imperial power is reaching across the globe. The church in Rome was located at the seat of imperial power. So you can imagine that when Paul uses this word power, the gospel is the power of God. This is kind of shifting some categories, those who were first reading this letter. This, this church in Rome was located at the seat of imperial power, and that imperial power would soon publicly shame Christians for not bowing to Caesar. How relevant is this for us, brothers and sisters? For those who live in the capital region of a world superpower. 
Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of that power, which is greater than the power of the emperor of Rome. I am not ashamed of the power of God to save and redeem sinners. Oh, sure. You know, Caesar, he can take nations and transfer their riches into his coffers by force. And that's how he gets the Pax Romana. That's how he gets peace. He gets peace by power. But God gives us peace by his saving power. By giving us the righteousness of his son. Caesar takes. God gives. Unlike Caesar, God has the power to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the riches of his righteousness. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Perhaps, perhaps we could be ashamed if we served a lesser power than Caesar. But the truth is, God is no lesser power. He is the ultimate power. And he gives an infinitely and eternally greater peace. We ought not be ashamed. Rather, we ought to be eager to share this good news precisely because it is such good news. Are you eager? Are you deliberately trying to find a way into conversations to share the good news about Jesus? I've got a, a friend who's, who's a really good evangelist who says that one of the reasons that people don't share the gospel, don't share the good news about Jesus, is because evangelism is not on the brain. And what he's saying, what he's saying is this, we don't walk around thinking, who can I share the good news of Jesus Christ with in this room? So you, you go to a dinner party. We don't walk into that dinner party thinking, okay, how am I going to find my way into a conversation about Jesus? Perhaps we should when we kind of begin to move into these environments. We have to, I think, discipline ourselves and plan for evangelism. We have to be purposeful about evangelism. Are we, are we doing that? Are, are we making time and space in our lives for evangelism? Uh, this could be a, one way to get a sense of, of our own eagerness. And my guess is, is that every one of us here in this room uh, may say, I'm so busy. And I don't doubt that. Uh, but are we busy with the, the right things, the, the most important things? Another way to get a sense for our own eagerness is to consider who we pray for. Uh, do you have unbelievers on your prayer lists? Um, what friends, family members, and, and co-workers are you praying for by name? Asking the Lord to make his saving power known in their lives. Let's give ourselves to praying for the Lord to work powerfully in the lives of those who do not believe. We should be eager to share the good news with other. And, and as we conclude, I want us to think about why it is so urgent that we eagerly share this good news about God with others. Before Martin Luther discovered the true and deep meaning of Romans 1, 16 and 17, he lived as a self-justifier. He lived as one who thought his problem could be resolved from within, as though he was the one who could earn God's favor through his righteous works. And this honestly is how we're all tempted to live. We're all tempted to trust in our own righteousness. We're tempted to believe that our problem is outside of us and that the answer is found within us. If we really just you know, reach deep enough, we can dredge up the good that's necessary to please God. 
Martin Luther knew better. He knew that Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 teaches us that no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks after God, no one does good, and there is nothing within us that we can reach for to please God and earn His favor. But we can see that scores and scores of people around us are trusting themselves instead of in Jesus Christ alone. We can see this by the, the common answer that people give to the question, why should God let you into heaven? According to a 2010 survey from the Association of Religion Data Archives, there were uh, 207,627 people living in Arlington County. Um, can you guess how many of those 207,000 plus identified, uh, were identified as evangelical Protestants? 207,000 plus. Evangelical Protestants, 7,935. So for the math nerds in this congregation, uh, who they've already figured it out, that's 3.8%. So some of you have heard me give these figures before, but I think they bear repeating. So less than 4% of people who live in Arlington County would identify themselves as evangelical Protestants, those trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That means out of every 100 people that you cross on the street, Maybe four of them would confess faith in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. Which means that 96 other people, when they come to stand before the judgment seat of God, would ask God to let them in because they think they're a good person. In other words, they're trusting in their own righteousness, not God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. For every 1,000 people you drive past in Arlington County, 962 of them are trusting in their own righteousness. For every 10,000 people who visit one of the many Starbucks or the Starbucks or the Starbucks or the Starbucks locations here, 9,620 of them are lost. For every 100,000 Arlington County residents who get on the metro, more than 96,000 of them remain dead in their sin and trespasses. Last year, 2016, county's population was estimated at more than 230,000 people. Which means that if the numbers from 2010 hold true, the wrath of God remains upon more than 221,000 people living here. And that's to say nothing of the surrounding cities and counties. Brothers and sisters, these friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers, they need to hear the good news of Jesus with so many in danger of hell. We cannot afford to be ashamed of the gospel. We must be courageous with it. We must be eager to share the good news that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who would believe because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Brothers and sisters, he has made his power known in your life. You have evidence that he is powerful. Believe that this message is powerful. We've not only got to hold on to this good news in faith, we've also got to eagerly give it away. Let's pray together.